Broadcasting from Washington, D.C., welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies and organizations. So today is a very special episode as I'm joined by three guests, Gayatri Patel, Director of Gender Advocacy at Care International, Caroline Hubbard, Senior Gender Advisor and Deputy Director for Gender, Women and Democracy at the National Democratic Institute, otherwise known as NDI, and Zar Wardak. Vice President and Regional Director for the Middle East and South Asia at Finca Impact Finance. So I'm in D.C. with these three remarkable human beings for an International Women's Day panel hosted by Finca Impact Finance, and it's focused on whether access to finance can actually lead to women's political empowerment. These three organizations, CARE, NDI, and Finca Impact Finance, are all at the forefront of pushing for equality and access to critical resources and education around the world and closing the gender gap. Gayatri, Caroline, Zar, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to start with a really basic question, Zar. I want to start with you first. Tell me a little bit about Finca Impact Finance. Finca Impact Finance is a global network of 20 banks and microfinance institutions providing responsible financial solutions to 2.6 million customers in five continents. And just briefly, a little bit about you and your background and what you do with Finca Impact Finance. I am the regional director for Middle East and South Asia. I work with countries such as Jordan, Pakistan, Afghanistan, and I also chair the board for Kosovo, but I also chair the diversity and inclusion steering committee globally for Finca Impact Finance. And you don't sleep? No. (laughs) (laughs) It's great to have you. Thanks. Gayatri? Well, hello. Thank you. This is Gayatri Patel. I'm from CARE. A little bit about CARE. We are a large international nonprofit organization, NGO, working in about 100 countries around the world. We work on a wide range of development and humanitarian assistance issues. So everything ranging from food security to water, sanitation, and health to child marriage. We cover a number of issues, but really central to all of that work is the empowerment of women and girls and really elevating the role of gender equality in development and humanitarian assistance policies. And before CARE, you spent a number of years as a foreign affairs officer in the U.S. Department of State. I did. Could not have been easy. (laughs) I cut my teeth on policy work working within the State Department. So I worked a lot on foreign policy related to human trafficking, humanitarian assistance, migration, etc. It's really nice to be part of a large NGO as well who's doing a lot of work in the It's great to have you here. Thank you. Caroline? Hi, my name is Caroline Hubbard, and I am the Senior Gender Advisor and Deputy Director for Gender, Women, and Democracy at the National Democratic Institute, NDI. And NDI is an international organization that supports the aspirations of citizens around the world to create and sustain democratic processes and democratic actors. We have offices in about 55 countries, and we have off-site programming in at least five more countries. And my focus is on ensuring that all the work that we're doing integrates a gender lens and making sure that when we are promoting democratic processes and democratic actors, that that includes women as well as gender-inclusive processes. And you got your master's from my alma mater, GW. I did. I have a master's in women's studies and public policy from GW. Years and years ago, as an undergrad at GW, I took one of the first women's studies classes and they just offered it. Who was your professor? I can't remember her name now, so now I'm 
kicking myself for Cynthia saying Harrison. that. Cynthia Harrison. No. Her license plate said ERA now. That's all I remember. And thinking of somebody else that that might also be as well. <laughs> she was, a four. Were, she was yeah. amazing. Absolutely amazing. So we're actually a few days away from International Women's Day. And when we broadcast this podcast, we'll have passed it by two days. It's more than 100 years old. It's my understanding that International Women's Day started actually around garment workers for parity back in the early 1900s. And obviously, it's evolved quite a bit today. What does International Women's Day mean to you? And Caroline, I want to start with you. For me, this year is important, not just for International Women's Day that's coming up, but because it's the 25th anniversary of the Beijing Declaration, which still remains the most progressive blueprint for women's rights. So it's a time to really think about the progress that women have made, as well as the strategies that have been used to achieve them. And this week and next week, but this entire year, I think that organizations such as NDI and activists like those sitting at this table are really taking stock of gender equality and women's empowerment. And it's an important time to do that. I also have three daughters. And so International Women's Day is always personal for me because I want them to be equal. I want them to have equal rights. Thank you. Gayatri? I would say that International Women's Day is very much about recognizing the solidarity of women, the power of women, the voice of women. And when we think about it as a large NGO, we have women from all over the world who are celebrating and commemorating International Women's Day. And it means something different to all of them based on their context. But for me, it's really the day is about bringing those threads together to focus on the fact that women are very powerful change agents. They do have a voice. They should have a say in decision making and really recognizing that and honoring it and trying to advance it even further than it already is. Zar? To me, it's a day of celebration of how far we have come although we know there are still a lot of challenges ahead of us. And it's not something that can be solved overnight, but I think we have come far. And in particular, in the countries where I work, usually women are not celebrated, and that's the only day that they get celebrated in their households. So it has a deeper meaning for me because I see how the husbands and the rest of the family members that one day are really celebrating their wives, their mothers, their children, and also celebrating the contributions that they are making. And actually, even compared to any of the developed world, Women's Day gets celebrated in the developing world a lot more because there's that need for celebration. There's that need for them to show that they have a voice and they need to be equal. So it has a very personal meaning to me because I work in the field and I work with these women. And I'm glad to see them celebrate that one day and rejoice. And Zara, have you seen progress over the last 10 years? I have. I predominantly spend my time in Afghanistan and also in Pakistan, where there's severe inequality for women. And in particular in Afghanistan, because they went through 40 years of war and women had basically no rights. They didn't have the right to education. They didn't have the right to have a say in the decisions of the family. I do see a lot of progress, and a lot of it is because we have provided access 
to finance to them, which actually gives them a voice and empowers them in the household. They're a part of the decision-making process in the household. And the one thing that I have noticed, the more these women become empowered and the more they have a voice in the family, the communities change. They form the communities. It's not just an impact on their own households. It's an impact on the entire community. And I'll give you an example, which I will talk about later as well, as we opened the women-only branch in Afghanistan. Culturally, women don't have access to banks because husbands and fathers do not allow them right, to go to banks. Typically, the men control Typically, the money, right? men control and yeah, predominantly male-dominated sector. But in order for us to provide that ease to them, we opened a woman-only branch where from the guard all the way to the branch manager are women. So we are providing a platform for these women not only to have access to finance, but for them to come together, for them to learn from each other's experiences, to learn from each other's businesses, share their success but also share their challenges and for them to be heard. And so those are the impacts that I see. And I see that this woman-only branches and business-owned, women-business-led and businesses owned in Afghanistan is becoming something very normal to everybody. And there are a lot of other microfinance institutions and banks are actually emulating this platform now and providing that level of access and those channels for women to come together. So yeah, I do see a huge difference from 10 years ago. And ultimately, it shouldn't just be one day that we celebrate women. It should be every day. But that's the one day that... Yeah. Yeah. In Gayatri, similar experiences. Can you talk a little bit about political empowerment as well? In terms of progress, maybe? Yes. Well, I mean, I want to echo a lot of what we just talked about, that access to finance, access to economic tools is such a gateway in so many ways. I mean, we at CARE focus heavily on village-level kind of savings group models. And it sounds very economic. It's very much about saving and loaning to your community members. But the added benefits are huge. I mean, you see an increase in women's confidence. You see an increase in women's ability to speak up in their communities. You see a plethora of skills that they're developing, not just in the economic realm, but in public speaking, in literacy, in leadership, etc. Employment. Employment. Yeah, exactly. There are so many skills that you get from just the process of economic empowerment that can help lead you to political engagement. I think we also have to look at the idea that political engagement looks different in different contexts. For some, it means just being able to speak up in their household or just being able to speak up within their small community. For others, it means this huge step of running for political office and having the confidence to be able to do that. The progress we see through a lot of our programming is that the skills and the networks and the solidarity that you develop through a lot of the economic empowerment interventions does have a follow-on effect when it comes comes to engagement beyond just the economic realm. Is there a program in particular that you think would help demonstrate to people who are not familiar with CARE? I mean, we see CARE everywhere, but it doesn't mean we understand Thank what you. CARE does. No, but, <laughs> Our uh, brand people would be so happy to hear right. that. Is there an example that comes to mind that can help from a programming standpoint that helps reinforce what you had just said? Yeah, absolutely. In 1991, we started our Village Savings and Loans Associations in Niger, which, as many of you know, is very low on the gender equality index, has a particularly difficult problem with child marriage and gender inequality. And these village savings groups were 
for many of the women in the community, their first opportunity to engage in economic activity outside of their homes or even to be outside of their homes on a more expanded basis. And between 1991 and now, these savings groups have self-replicated. They've become kind of a bedrock of their communities. They've increased not just the financial resources of the community and of the households who are participating. What we've seen is that they've built networks in and amongst themselves that have translated to political power. So these village savings and loans associations started banding together. They started coming together in networks and then coming together in federations. And mind you, women are leaders in all of these structures, and so they build leadership skills. And what we've seen between now and then is that this expansion in networks and kind of the federation model that they've created has meant that in several places, the number of women running for political office has nearly doubled. There are unprecedented levels of women in political leadership positions. And so this intrinsic value of having confidence, having the ability to speak publicly, has actually translated to having a greater say in public policy and taking on those official leadership positions. My guess is while we can't map it specifically, it's not just about improving lives, but it's also about saving lives. And I can only imagine that your work and the work of all these organizations has saved number of lives as well. If I can give just one example on, on that realm, I mean, the topic of gender-based violence is very near and dear to my heart. And what we see from some of these programs is, particularly when you engage men and boys in the process as well, you see a decline in gender-based violence. Sometimes you see an uptick in gender-based violence because there is this concept of shifting norms will make people feel uncomfortable, the gender norms are being challenged, and that can create more intimate partner violence. But by and large, we see that when women are more economically stable and economically advanced, and they have that sense of self-confidence, they are more likely and more able to reject intimate partner violence. And that, in so many instances, has a life-saving effect. And Caroline, I know you're dying to jump in here. So Based on what we're talking about and what you've heard, there's also this notion of cultural norms, which Gayatri just brought up. How do you overcome cultural norms? I mean, I think about we're sitting in Washington, D.C., and even in the United States, just now, right, we're at the point of time's up, me too, and these movements that you would think we were still back in 1900, but now it's 2020. How do you overcome some of those cultural norms? That's an incredibly important question. And it's one when we're talking about increasing women's political participation is really the top of our agenda right now. In the last 20 years, there's been a lot of progress on increasing women's prescriptive representation in parliament and some in local office. So in the past two decades, we've seen the number of nationally elected female parliamentarians double. So we have 24% of parliamentarians globally are women. But the prescriptive representation and the increases in numbers has not led to the large-scale shifts in attitudes and norms that are really at the basis of women's inequality and lack of access to political empowerment. So we're now actually working to develop strategies that target men specifically. Men hold the majority of political power. That's just how it is. In all the countries around the world where I work, men are the majority of political party leaders, if not all of the party leaders, and they're heads of state and so forth. So 
you can't burden women alone with trying to actually break down all the barriers and advocate for all the change that will lead to gender equitable democracy and women's parity in politics. Men have to be convinced that it is in their best interest to also support women. And so our programming has increasingly focused on targeting men and really trying to get them to have empathy for and understand the plight of women and support women's increased participation. It's very difficult. I just finished about a six to eight month program. It was a pilot program in the Democratic Republic of Congo. And I don't know, some of you are probably familiar with how difficult and patriarchal a culture and a country that is. And we worked with five political parties, and we ran workshops with 15 political party leaders from the youth leadership and also senior leadership. And these workshops targeted their understanding of gender equality, their understanding of gender. Did they realize that as a man, they also experienced gender norms? Did they understand the harms that it also caused to their own lives? And tried to really help them move through a personal shift from understanding that gender norms were bad for men, but they also had a really negative impact on women. And more importantly, what did that actually mean for politics and for their party? And then ideally, through this process, they're supposed to really commit to taking personal action, as well as eventually, hopefully, changing the organizational culture of the parties. And I'll tell you, we saw real change. I mean, I was surprised. After a full day of each of these, you do end up in a situation where about half the group is saying women still need to walk behind us. If women are in politics, the world will fall apart. We can't have women in leadership positions. But the other half really kind of coming awake and really realizing, hey, wait a minute, this isn't okay. And although after eight months, there was not a shift to let's change the whole party structure and empower women to participate in politics, there needs to be a lot more work for that. Men were going home and making their beds for the first time. And even the men in our own country office, who we also made Also small victories, though, lead to big victories, right? That's a huge victory. Men in the Congo going home and making beds is It's incredible change. It's hard to understand sitting here in the United States what that actually means. But when you talk to the men and their wives and even the women in the office in the DRC, they really saw a big change. So, But that's just baby steps, right? Because moving into actually politics is about power. It's where power is. And so the work that you do at a community level around gender-based violence or with individual men, oftentimes around gender-based violence, These are not elite men necessarily. They may be able to visualize how much they have to gain when they stop abusing their wife and abusing their family and so forth. But men in political leadership positions don't necessarily have obvious gains for ceding political power to women. In fact, men see it as a zero-sum game. They don't understand that women in their own party— They think they'll be more vulnerable if they do that. Well, no, they think they'll lose power. I mean, I'll give you one last example. So in Kenya, they passed a very progressive gender quota. I think it was 2012. And the men in the Kenyan parliament, there's two main parties, and they don't get along at all, I mean, to the point that there's violence between the two parties. But the one thing that the men could come together on across the two parties was not to implement the gender quota appropriately to allow women to actually access power in the spirit of the law. So they couldn't agree on much, but men can agree in politics oftentimes about keeping women out. And this rings true for men in their own political parties. So data has shown that if you're in a political party and a man is running against you in your party, let's say to take your seat or your position, you're much less threatened than if it's a woman. That doesn't really make sense, right? Because it's the same party. 
but they see it as a zero-sum game. If women are coming in and taking a position of power, I think that in the United States, it's very similar. I don't necessarily think, I mean, here we are in 2020, we cannot elect a female president. We can't even nominate one. <laughs> I think I we're mean, almost going backwards. I could be wrong, but the other day, Amy Klobuchar even said, I think she was the first senator from Minnesota. That's kind of shocking yeah. as well. I mean, I think it's 25% of the U.S. Congress is female, and this is the highest we've had. We're not high on the list of countries in terms no. of representation and national legislation. Do, do you ever get men to try to lead these workshops as well, or train men to lead them? Men do lead them. Ah, in okay. fact, that wasn't a setup question. I actually did not no, know that. Men don't listen to women. So a curious anecdote that some of you may be familiar with. So there's an organization in Lebanon called Abad, and it's a masculinities organization. And the person that you oftentimes see representing the organization's name is Anthony, and he's fabulous, and he's kind of a younger guy, and he talks about masculinities and so forth. But the actual founder and the person that runs it is a woman. And when I met her last year in Beirut, I asked her, I was like, you know, how come we never see you at these masculinities conferences or talking about these issues? And she said, you know, I found Anthony, I trained him and I sent him out there because that's who people are listening to. That's who men are listening to. This is Gayatri. We similarly face that problem in, in some of our programs where we do engage men and boys. We have a kind of a peer-to-peer model where we'll get a cohort of men involved in a curriculum that talks about gender equality and toxic masculinity and get them to be the messengers within their community and kind of replicate that way. And I mean, Carolyn makes a beautiful point that there could be women running the show, but the men have to be the face of it for it to really take shape, unfortunately. How do you feel about, there's this huge push towards purpose by companies and people who listen to this podcast, the eight or nine people who do have heard me say that many companies do right, but maybe for the wrong reason. A lot of them have commercial goals and gains and that's fine, but I do believe that companies can be for both profit and purpose. But where should corporate America or large multinational corporations play in issues like these? How far should they go and where should they play? And I imagine that some of them also are the very funders and grantors of your organizations, right? I think that starts... Zar jumping in now. Yeah, Zar yeah. jumping in. <laughs> Thank you. I think it starts with awareness. I think it starts with them taking a lead role because it is a part of their corporate responsibility. Because it has been proven that women make phenomenal leaders in what we do, which is finance. Women are better finance managers. And when a woman is empowered, in, in particular economically, like I said, they manage a lot of the risk that otherwise is not managed. Cash flow smoothening, women are a lot better in budgeting. Not only that, a woman spend money on things that actually matter, which is healthcare, education for their children. So not only impacting, again, the household, but then also the communities where they're living. So being a real responsible corporate citizen, I think it's extremely important that they create that awareness and they need to address diversity within their own institutions and lead by example. Because again, diversity is not nice to have. It's a must-have. 
there's a business reason for it. And, and it's bigger than that. It's really, and it is it's, bigger it's than inclusion. That. It right? is inclusion. It's belonging. I agree with you. All these companies need to have a double bottom line, which is both their social purpose, but then also they have to be sustainable. They have to be profitable for them to exist. But again, to me, leading by example and really making sure that they're the ones spearheading this because those days are gone where we sit in the boardrooms and we only see four or five people represented just by men and not women. And one of the things that we have addressed at our level is that we are not just looking at diversity at our own institutional level, at our subsidiaries, the countries where we operate. We also make sure that our border directors at the top of the organization, there is that diversity, so they are driving that change. So the change has to start there, and it will trickle down. And if there is that sense of purpose, I'm sure that it will get done. Gayatri? The question about corporate responsibilities is a really critical one for organizations like CARE. We take our corporate partnerships very seriously, and we're very proud of the work that we're doing with financial institutions, with technology companies, technology companies yeah. with agribusiness, et cetera. I think there's a natural partnership there for us with financial institutions where opening access to financial services for women, particularly as they graduate from kind of these very basic savings-led approaches to more expanded entrepreneurship projects. It's so critical that we open access and make sure that everyone can get a bank account because we know that it increases return on savings and gives women much needed control over their own assets. In that space, we've really worked with financial institution partners to expand services for over 1 million of our savings group members. It's a really critical piece of it. But I think we also need to look at value chains and look at where agribusiness, for example, can really be a partner in scaling up a lot of these successful approaches that we're seeing. So in West Africa, for instance, we work with cocoa industry corporate partners, as well as local communities, as well as our own teams, to make sure that these very integrated approaches that talk about economic empowerment, that talk about gender-based violence, that talk about toxic masculinity, all of those integrated approaches can be scaled to be present in more communities, to be present amongst the families of the employees of these companies, etc. So I think really looking holistically at where a corporate partnership can really take shape and really be substantive for broader impact. And Caroline, you get the last word. From the point of view of actually working in the political sector, it's really challenging to work with private companies. Corporations are very cautious about working to shape governments or have their hand in politics at all. Well, explicitly, they're cautious. Well, yes. I mean, on the public stage. So women's rights work, oftentimes you do have corporate partners, you know, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Coca-Cola, Nike. But when it comes to political participation, it's a lot more difficult. And a lot of the work that we do, it's not as quote unquote sexy, is work with political parties. And we are nonpartisan, NDI, so we'll work with different parties from different points of view. But corporations don't necessarily want to be working with a political party that is not the party in power, is the party that's in opposition. And even if it's on very sort of soft entry It could feel benign, but it's not to them. Yeah, women's leadership, let's say. Right, right. it It can be very complicated for corporations to do that. And so that's something that I think makes it a little bit tricky. We have to leave it here, unfortunately. I'm looking forward to actually seeing the real panel. 
This is like the fake panel. One of the key themes that I've taken from this among many is that even though we're talking about women's issues, we do need men to participate. We need to work together, whether it's corporates or politics or financial institutions. And I think we can all agree that we can be where we should be less divisive, right? And look for more civil discourse and more partnerships. So thank you everyone for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks. This has been an episode of Brand on Purpose with Aaron Quickkin, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories of entrepreneurs and senior leaders who make it their brand's mission to do well by doing good. Special thanks to our amazing team, including the voice you never hear, producer extraordinaire Lindsay Hand, and the always on point associate producer Katrina Walkley, who touches every aspect of this podcast. Learn more about our show at brandonpurpose.com, follow our Instagram at the Bop Podcast, and learn more about our host at AaronQuicken.com. Yeah.